Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? Good evening. You're listening to Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy another exciting episode of our show. Gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Straight Talk with Dana Mark. This is Six Man Dane Geronimo in the studio. We are back from Pod being back to Blog Talk Radio. But from NJ to NC, I'm in the studio with my right hand man, Mark Lee. So, Mark, tell me what's good in your neck of the woods, my brother. Well, you know, keeping busy as always, just finished doing uh, the uh, streaming podcast that we are also putting on our network and things of that nature. I had some very enlightening conversations, learned a lot about the world, learned a lot about other aspects of other countries and how they are treating us and how they are thinking about us. Because I actually had, um, as a guest, um, none other than... Uh, um, a gentleman from South Africa, so that was um, Dean. His, his name was Dean, too. He was Dean Botha, but he runs a wow. program out of uh, South Africa that is kind of like teaching people about entrepreneurship, young people under the age of 35 with a concentration, of course, of those that are even much younger than that. So they have this mm-hmm. thing called the Pride Factor, and he is the uh, one of the primary people that put that together, a former surfer who apparently still surfs despite having an accident and some injuries and he's a newlywed just got married i think within like the last week or two so i met him through uh some of my contacts and mutual people but we had a conversation and he was telling me some of the things that are going on in south africa they got some stimulus money too and apparently the stimulus money there was like we complained about what we get it was ridiculous there i think he said that on the low end some of the people were getting what amounts to like $18 $18 a month. So you try what? to imagine living off of $18 a month. And even some of the more middle class folks were getting what would amount to 250 or 300 But definitely not a lot of oh, money to oh. be trying to survive on in terms of things of that nature. Like I said, I think it was 18 a month. I don't think it was weekly. I'm pretty sure he said wow. monthly. But either way, it was not enough to be trying to survive on. I mean, he did put it in the number of the... Um, 
currency that they use. But even in that currency, right. when he said that figure, all I could do was shake my head and things of that nature. And then on the other podcast, because, you know, we do two of them on Monday, um, the, the streaming type. We had two guests that have traveled the world. One of them, they were both career coaches to some degree, but one of them okay. now lives in New York, but is originally from London. So she was talking about uh, some of the things about black lives. We did talk about the monarchy and, you know, she is not, uh, it's just part of their life in her mind of being part of London, but she's not like blown away by it or anything of that nature. But she did talk about that. She talked about black lives matter and even some of the, societies that are trying to bring more of us to their part of the world like ghana and other things and then the last lady that came on sophia is involved and now lives in bali so she was living in a resort you heard me say a resort for like two hundred dollars a month so you know if if people get reelected, we might have to move to bali because she was saying that the economy and to move to some of these countries is a lot cheaper than we think because like i said she showed the outside of her place it was a nice resort with nice fancy trees and everything and i think she said she was paying something like 200 so it was a lot cheaper than you would have to pay for something (laughs) like that here in the state and everything so like I said you know certain people get elected I might have to come up to New Jersey kidnap you and your lovely wife and we might have to move to Bali or some of these other places that seem to be a lot more economical but it was just interesting getting their views because she's a young lady I think in her late 30s but she was talking about having been in the education field there in New York and now living in Bali. She'd also spent some time in China and a number of other places. And she's of Haitian descent. She was actually born here in the U.S., but she was born as a baby. Her parents had come in from Haiti. So we were talking about um, Haiti and its kind of role as an independent country and how if Haiti ever got the respect that it deserved, it would probably really upset the apple cart in the way that... um, the African-American population and in the way that uh, we as a people are viewed just because, you know, it was the, one of the first independent nations with Toussaint L'Overture and a lot of the other kind of history. So it was just fascinating having that conversation and talking to them and just getting all kinds of insight of the world and how we are viewed in the world, even talking about Black Lives Matter and a number of other things. So, like I said, it was an amazing conversation. I've got about... Uh, five shows and i know i'm usually more on top of that than usual but you know we were having the pod yeah. team blog talk kind of conversation <laughs> back and forth and everything so it kind of threw me off but right. i've got about five shows that i'm going to be sending to you and all of them were fascinating not just the two that okay. i did today but also the three that were done by our co-conspirators because zach had this amazing guest on that talked about um some of his experience and he had played with all kinds of greats and everything and now lives up there in the New York, New Jersey area. And that was um, Andre LaSalle. So he was on yesterday. And then the day before was another great musician from up in that area and everything who actually did. um, I think Andre did a live performance and it was just amazing. And then the other one, we played some of their tracks, but two great musicians from up there in the the, uh, Northeast area. And then Tish had a uh, gentleman that was talking about um, coming from mixed cultures, you know, coming from like interracial relationships and things of that nature and just kind Mm -hmm. of like diversity in 
corporate America. So a lot of fascinating conversations that you will be getting uh, hopefully later on today, and it will add to our track record okay. of fascinating conversations that we do here on our Next Level Podcast Network. So, you know, that's kind of what's going on here. We were having hiccups wow. with the yeah, online yeah. education because we were having hiccups today. I don't know how y'all were doing, but today was our first day, and folks were definitely, you know, not getting online, um, just having <laughs> hard times getting into classes, just having all kinds of issues in that regard. So we were okay. having those hiccups, unfortunately. I know y'all were probably having them up there as well. And then just recently, like within the last, um, I'd say, hour or so, we learned that um, UNC, uh, which is over there in Chapel Hill, they were going to uh-huh. try to do this mixture of online and offline, but they've had a couple of cases already, and there are cases like in frat houses and other things. Really? So as, as recently as just like today, they have announced that they are going all online. So they made a very quick pivot. That is our new word of the uh, the millennium is pivot. We were talking about that exactly. even with the uh, – other podcasts that, you know, if we've learned a new word that everybody's having to learn what it means and how it works, it is the word pivot. So they had to pivot <laughs> real quick and they shifted to going strictly uh, online because, like I said, you know, they had those cases. They realized that folks were not masking up, not doing what they're supposed to do. So they made a real fast pivot and are now going to go completely online. So it ought to be interesting to see how that plays out as well. So Definitely is some fascinating things that are going on here in the world, and we're just going to have to see how it all plays out. But that's what's happening on this end to some degree. I'm sure there are a number of other things that are going on in the world. We do know that later on today is going to be the um, announcement of the – well, not the announcement, but the Democratic Convention starts. They've already got both a presidential candidate – as well as a um, vice presidential candidate. So we know that Kamala Harris is the vice presidential pick. A lot of folks are going to be wondering about that, whether that was a smart move or not smart move. But, you know, we'll find out. But I do know that I think the online version starts at around 9 o'clock. So in about a little Mm. bit less than two hours from now, they will have a number of great speakers. I want to say that Michelle Obama is one of the featured speakers for this evening. And we do know that I think tomorrow we'll get Jill Biden, who is Joe Biden's uh, wife. And then as we get closer and closer, we'll get to um, both Kamala and uh, Joe himself as they go ahead and make them the official candidates for the Democratic Party. But I did see that it does start today in an area of the world that I know quite well, even though it's been ages since I've been there. But, you know, we oftentimes talk about our society and what are influential periods of our life. I know that an influential period in your life was the time that you spent in Virginia at college and an influential period along those same lines for me was my four and a half years in Milwaukee at Marquette University. So like I said, I think I got there in the summer of uh, 1980. So I would have been about, um, let's see, 62. So I would have been around 18 or 17, going on 18 at the time that I got there. And when I left in uh, December of 1984, because like I said, it was four and a half years about uh, – you know, however many that translates into semesters <laughs> and everything. But I think that would have been, let's see, uh, well, five, I got to do the math. I think it's like two, <laughs> you get one semester per season or something like that. So uh, everything. Two, two a year? 
Yeah, two eight, years, right. So, so four nine, times two would be eight. Then I had that extra one, nine. One. So, and then the summer one. So we'll say 10 semesters. So 10 semesters of college were spent yeah. there in Milwaukee. Oh, Definitely enjoyed spending time there and learning about the Milwaukee Brewers, which is now my favorite baseball team and has been ever since I was there and learning about other aspects of that culture. So definitely okay. enjoyed my time there, had some activism periods because people forget Black Lives Matter is not necessarily a new thing. And this whole thing with the police isn't necessarily new because I always time, right. I know I brought it up on this show, I brought it up on other things, but there was a gentleman there by the name of Ernest Lacey, and he was also a case of mistaken identity. And of course, he lost his life way back in the early 80s, and there was a lot of protests around it even during that time so that's just one case that i'm aware of in milwaukee and i'm sure that there are a number of other ones as well so we do know that this does happen on a regular basis unfortunately it just happens too often and like i said that was i think in 83 or 82 but it was definitely while i was in school so we're talking about something that happened some 30 uh yeah 37 years ago or something like that 37 38 okay. years ago so it's just wow. a shame that unfortunately these things are still happening in this day and time that we're not having enough breaks in these kinds of realities unfortunately so we've got to do a better job of that we've got to figure out ways that we can address what's going on and to make better things happen but what that is going to be how that's going to play out only uh the world knows and only we can find out in that regards but that's what's happening here in north carolina what's happening over there in the new jersey area nothing but heat man i, I tell you that much you know <laughs> heat and rain so as long as no other um hurricanes or tropical storms come through we should be fine for now um waiting for that weather to change you know from summer to autumn and um it being a little relaxing before the winter comes, and hopefully the winter will stay peaceful and it doesn't get too bad. So, you know, other than that, man, it's not really a lot going on. I know, um, oh, you know what I did forget? Last week was the 10th, and the next day, last Tuesday, Hip Hop turned 47 years old, and I forgot to give a shout-out to Hip Hop for 47 years. Oh. Remember, they said it wasn't going to last, but um, I guess they thought wrong. You know what I mean? They thought big time wrong because this is 47 years old. And as I recall, that means it is not that far off from your age. So it's actually near your birthday and near your age. So it's not actually not far off of your own year. So that's how you're able to remember it because it's actually exactly. not that far from your birthday. It's, so I think that you and hip hop share like... <laughs> I am 11 days older than hip-hop. So, you know, when you look at it like that, um, yeah, I'm always going to remember it. It was in 73 when it happened up there, 1520 Sedgwick Avenue up in the Bronx. You know, Cool Herc and his sister Cindy uh, started that thing off, and it's been jumping ever since. So, hey. 
And I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's probably going to be here for a minute. It's not going anywhere. It's going to be doing some amazing things. And like I said, I think it'll be around like, uh, you know, blues, which, of course, you know, is one of my favorite music, like jazz, like, um, you know, even uh, R&B and, of course, classical music. I think that we'll probably have some folks doing hip-hop, like the 100-year raps, when they might be seeing some 100-year-old rappers that can still rap at 100 or whatever. But I know that we've got some granddaddy and grandma. <laughs> Grandma rappers already because we've had a couple of oh, them yeah. on our shows already. So we know that we got some grandmas and some grandpops and some other folks that can do this on a regular basis. So it'll be interesting to see whether that continues or how this all plays out. But I don't think it's going anywhere. And after a while, it'll be great history that folks will be doing. Well, actually, what am I thinking about? They're already doing documents about it. So Harvard and some yeah. of our major universities are already yeah. doing research on hip hop. It's role in history. It's connecting to other musical forms and things of that nature. So definitely hip-hop deserves the shout-out for its birthday. Speaking of birthday shout-outs, i got to give two other things that are having shout-outs as well today. Okay. A lot of people do not know this, but the month of August marks the 100th anniversary of the women's right to vote. So the suffrage movement, yeah. 100th anniversary, and all of that was right, right around now as well. So that amendment was passed. I personally think that... Uh, that was a great thing, just like the Civil Rights Amendment was a great thing. But there were also mm-hmm. things that were uh, things left undone. So I'm actually have no right. problem with equal pay for equal work and some other things. I thought the ERA should have been passed when it was up there last time back in like the 70s or the 80s. or I think it was the 70s. But whatever, it did not happen. Some of the uh, right-wing forces that are now in the office were actually against it. You know, they were probably big fans of Phyllis Shafley and some others that tried to, you know, put a horrible twist on it and did not give it the kind of justice and the dues that it deserves. So that was uh, something that I think still needs to be corrected, and hopefully during the course of time it will be corrected. But I am a big fan of all of us getting the equal pay for equal work. So that being said, I must give a shout out to the women that were at the forefront. Women like Susan and Anthony, excuse me, Susan Anthony and a number of others. Of course, we cannot forget Durham's own Pauli Murray. So there are a number of folks that got a, uh, (coughs) that were part of this great history and that we need to honor on a regular basis. So, Definitely got to give them a shout out also. So, oh, and I must mention also the Negro League. The Negro League also turned yes, 100 years, years old. Today. old. Yes, yes. <laughs> and you know what? I need to find. And if anybody knows where you can get custom made um, or at least you know the authentic Negro League jersey, hit us up and let us know because I need to get a couple of maybe one, at least one of them. You know what I mean? I actually have found another place that you can get those because actually the um, Negro League Museum, uh, which is just in Kansas City, has teamed up with a designer. And that designer has made custom shirts that are of the original Monarchs and some of the other teams. So you can get that at the Negro League Museum website. And I'm actually going to pull it up and find the name of that company. But I know he was on my friend Tree's show yesterday, and he did mention that they had teamed up. And you actually had to go to the actual site of not the Negro League Baseball Museum, but for the clothing company that they have teamed up with in order to get said the shirt so i'm gonna look that okay. up right now and see if we can't find yeah, that for please. you but he did make it very clear 
that as part of the fundraiser to celebrate the 100 year anniversary, of course, they did have to, you know, that favorite word that we just used, they did have to do some pivoting and some things along that line. So with that pivot, they will do some other celebrations next year as well. So they're continuing the 100 year celebrations, but they will also be having 101 year celebrations as well so they'll be having some celebrations next year but they have teamed up with uh, like this clothing company and some other things so i'm actually going to the nlbm website right now and seeing the name of that company because (laughs) yes i'm trying to look it up and see if we can't find you the names of these great uh clothes because they have done a teamwork and so we're going to find out uh what the name of this company is so we can see what's going on and where you can get this great product because when I saw that I was like hey that just is amazing and I'm like you we need to get some of these shirts and everything Uh, I can tell you one thing uh, the Heritage jersey is not exactly cheap so uh, they might not be getting that from me but either that or I might have to get somebody (laughs) to sponsor and help me out with that one because I just went to the Heritage one and it says something about like you know hundred plus and like I said I do believe in supporting folks but that was a little bit uh, but not not right not right there <laughs> not right there I'm not knocking it but I'm just I just hit that one and that one just caught me off guard there but you know I, I, you got to do what you got to do so I'm not arguing with them doing that but at the same time I was like wait wait a minute that was a little bit outside of my price range at the moment so you know how it is sometimes well, you got well, to deal with what is in your price range <laughs> exactly man because if you don't then you're going to be looking like oh my goodness you know and then it goes from there so they do have on the site I'm looking they're like $89 Birmingham Black Barons the Brooklyn Royal Giants Detroit Stars, the Homestead Grays, the Indianapolis, Indianapolis Clowns, Kansas City Monarchs, the New York Black Yankees, and the Pittsburgh Crawford jerseys. So they have quite a few of them up here, man. Quite a yeah, few. Yeah, they're not bad. So you might, have to, you might have to, I'm, I'm seeing you in like a uh, Satchel Page uh, jersey. I can see you in a 1942 replica of Satchel Page. So I could, I could see you. Uh, in that and everything and they've also got some things that are a little bit more in the other people's price range because I'm seeing like a league pennant which isn't too bad and I'm even seeing uh, Atlanta Black Crackers Legend Cap I mean, that's uh-huh. not too bad either so they've got a variety of things of all sorts of prices and all sorts of ranges of prices so definitely uh, looks not too bad and like I said I'm not finding that partner of theirs that was the merchandise partner so I might have to go back in to Shree's show at some point and get back to you as to the name of that organization unless I find it in uh, the as I'm continuing the search but I'm not finding it right now but I do know that they had partnered with another company where you could buy stuff as well and the gentleman did name the uh, company because it was the president of this particular great uh, museum that was on this really show. So he was sharing some baseball memories and things of that nature. Do you have any memories of uh, family members or anybody that you knew of that talked about playing in the Negro League? Cause as I was on the show yesterday and I was talking to um, the gentleman through chat 
and through other things, and I made some comments. Some other people made some comments. But I do remember there was a guy named Artist Plummer who was here in North Carolina who only passed away last year. So he was actually one of the members that was um, alive for a number of years, and he did play at a couple of Negro League teams. And then he started a sign company, and like I said, he passed last year in 2019. But um, he was definitely proud of his baseball heritage, proud of having played in the league, and definitely shared that with a lot of folks. So he had a sign company and was right here in the Durham area. So I don't know in your own family if you had any folks who were involved in the Negro League or played in the Negro League that you recall telling you about that, either in Virginia or in other parts of the uh, world that you have relatives at. You know what? I'm not sure. You know, when you're younger, you don't pay attention to stuff like that. And then when you get older, it's like, I don't know. Did they tell me? Did they not tell me? Was I not paying attention? You know, so maybe it is. It'd be nice if it was. But then now I have to do everything in reverse and try to find out if there was someone, you know, in my family or close to my family or something that actually was fortunate enough to play in that historic league, you know? That would be amazing if you had somebody who was going to play in that league, if they were able to play in that league, if they were involved in that league. That would be a wonderful thing to learn that. Like I said, I don't know of any family members of my own that I'm aware of that played. Like I said, I did know Artist Plummer was involved in a couple of events, including a uh, Christmas parade and a couple of other events that he provided some of the signage and other things for. So I did get a chance to meet and talk to him a few times. I want to say my uncle, while not playing in the Negro League, I think that he did know some of those players and he did you know maybe plays like some pickup games with them and things of that nature and of course my dad was involved in the Alonquin tennis club which is more like a black tennis club which is also very popular during that day and time uh as well or it had like some parallels um even though it might have been later because that was probably like the 50s and things of that nature but definitely there were some uh parallels with some of the tennis and some of the other things in terms of being involved in our community and things of that nature. One of the things that I found really interesting that the president of that league was talking about was that, um, and he had some theories because he was saying that uh, as far as he was concerned, it was the most equal of the sports, meaning that, you know, you could be like a really uh, fat man and things of that nature, or you could be like a really skinny person and you can play the game of baseball. And he also made the comparison that unlike football and basketball, where if it's a blowout, there's not much chance of you coming back. Whereas in baseball, <laughs> in his mindset, there's always the possibility of a comeback, even if you're up by like eight or nine runs. You know, you can get on a real good rally and you can always come back. So you're never really out of the game until the last out is held and everything. But he did talk about the fact that it has lost popularity in our community. And one of the things that he mentioned about the reason that it lost popularity was because in his mind, and he used the words, not me, it has become more of a country club sport, meaning that it has kind of priced itself out of some of our communities. So apparently there's some efforts to apparently try to stop that and to try to get people more engaged in the games of baseball and uh, some of the leagues and things, youth leagues and things of that nature. But he did mention the fact that 
as the baseball had developed, they had gotten away from it being like a community kind of thing. Because I remember growing up in Warrington, North Carolina, there was like a big field, and we would play pickup games. I was usually assigned to the um, way out in the outfield because there was little chance of the ball coming out there. So I probably wasn't going to mess it up that bad or anything. So, you know, they didn't want me in the infield where I would be scoffing balls left and right and probably having way too many errors to use that baseball terminology. So I was out in the backfield, probably over there picking grass, you know, counting trees, doing everything. And every once in a while, a blooper might come my way. But, yeah, I was way out in the backfield because there was no chance of – there weren't that many – home run type hitter so and like I said I okay. want to say that that field was a little bit overgrown so I might have been over there can, trying to count butterflies and insects for all I know because I don't remember a lot of hits coming my way <laughs> is what I'm trying to say they might have been coming my way but I don't remember a lot of them uh, you know it wasn't like the pickup basketball games because I remember playing pickup basketball games growing up as well and you know those you were face to face going toe to toe and all of that but I don't remember a lot of balls being hit out there. I do remember the field being a kind of vast field and being kind of grassy. And I'm sure I was probably collecting some of them bugs that you don't want to be collecting when you're going out and about. So I think there were probably a bunch of ticks and other critters out there. But, hey, I was probably at that time because we moved when I was a um, around 10 or 11. So I think those games of baseball might have been somewhere between 10 and 11 and 15, 16, maybe 17. So we're more like, I'm thinking 10, 11 to like 14, 15. So, you know, I was probably just glad to be out there playing with my friends and to be right. outside versus inside. I probably wasn't really paying that much attention. And I was also probably glad that they weren't hitting the ball that hard to me and everything. You were probably in the middle of the baseball field, scooping up all of those shortstop plays and making all them spectacular plays. Cause I'm thinking you were probably like the all-star type Whereas I was just lucky if I got a hit. Nah, bro, I was right there at home plate playing catcher. And I think for a while I played center field. I don't know what in my mind made me think that I would be an awesome center fielder. It started out nice until those dudes start smacking those balls to left field and to right field. And at the center fielder, you know, you got to go and back up the left fielder or, you know, outfield or right outfielder. So it was a lot of running in that involved. And I was like, man, this is like a lot. Uh, let me move inside. Didn't want to play any of the bases because that's like the ball still coming that way, but it's closer, and they were coming hard fast, Jack. So I said, you know what? It's a safe bet to go and get behind home plate. And I had to get used to the uh, bat swinging in front of my face. So it was like, after I got past that, then I'd be all right. But at first, man, nah, I wanted to go straight to the outfield. You know, I was like, yeah, I can do this. And then after running for a while, I was like, I can't do this. This is a lot. <laughs> you know, I'm like, <laughs> let me get myself together. You be like, wait a minute, this is way too much. I cannot yeah, no, take this at all. You know what I mean? Like, it's too much damn work, man. Nah, man, this is not the move. It's too much running. So let me go ahead and go in. Maybe I'll be all right if I go in, you know. But at the same time, it was like, Still running around. It was fun. 
Don't get me wrong. These old legs can't do it now. Oh no! I, I know I cannot play baseball now. I'd be sitting there going like, I might be like you. I might be trying to be the catcher just so I could be in a safe environment, but I would not be trying to do anything major because I'd be sitting there going like, oh heck no, this is not happening. This is not even going to try to happen. So no, I'm agreeing with you on that. I don't think that I would be trying to do baseball at all on that level. So I agree with you 100%. I'd be like, nope. These old legs cannot move or anything of that nature. You know, sometimes we have illusions of what our old legs can do and what our old bodies can do. I told you that I've gone and run across friends of mine that are much younger and that I might enjoy having conversations with even, you know, people that I might want to smile with of the opposite gender. But even in that, it's just good to look at and to look at the eye candy. But, you know, I'm probably only going to go with so far with those that are in the 30 set, particularly the early 30 set, because, you know, they would probably run circles around me just in my social life, much less trying to play some baseball or trying to play a pickup game of softball with them. So, you know, sometimes you got to know know when to fold them and know when to hold them, as they used to say on the old yeah. uh, gambler song. So sometimes you got to know, what, know what's allowed and what's not allowed. <laughs> oh, heck yeah. You got to know when to walk away, man, because if you don't, You'll find yourself hurt up, bro. Like, you know, you don't want to be like that, man. Be calling, up, calling Dean up, talking about like, Dean, can't do uh, the Monday show. I tried to uh, tried to go dancing with a 26, 24-year-old, and now I got up a hurt up knee, and then, you know, they tried to, like, take me around the dance court and things of that nature. And Dean be like, Mark, I told you, you can't hang with them young folks no more. I told you yeah, not bro. to go there. <laughs> <laughs> you're like man I told you to let it go but nah you just wanted you just had to go out there didn't you you just had to mess your legs up and now you all beat up and the person that you were trying to hang with is looking at you shaking their head like I don't even know why this old dude tried to even hang with us but now you gotta get orthoscopic <laughs> surgery cause you tore something and then you're sitting there like, damn it, I shouldn't have done it. <laughs> Should not have done it in the least bit. Should have just left it alone altogether yeah, and things of that yeah. nature. And you'd be wondering, like, why? Why and everything. But, you know, um, I know that uh, Mel said he's going to give me a call, and I have not texted him, but I'm getting ready to call him right now. So I'm going to let you put on some honey music from Ninth Wonder, because I just love Ninth Wonder. And that looks like a nice, long song and everything. So I'm going to let you play Honey and if, me, no, if it takes me me about seven me minutes, maybe that, we'll play man. Honey and um, Girls. Okay. Okay. Huh? Well, you know what? Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we'll get... Yeah, we'll we'll do that because um, that way we can go ahead and rock out. You can go ahead and you know, try to find out where our guests might be for the night. We are back, y'all. It's Straight Talk with Dana Mark back on Blog Talk Radio. And um, we're going to take a little interlude with my man, Ninth Wonder. All right? Let's get it. Sounds, sounds good, and I'll call you right back once I find out where mail's at. <laughs> All right.
This is Nikki Hall, founder of Simply Radiant LLC, a woman with great passion and skill to make you look and feel better. Meet me where you are. Let's take it to another level, a new you. See you soon. Call 919-971-6243. Make your place today.
Are you enjoying the smoothest conversation in podcasting? Straight talk with Dean and Mark. Hi, this is DJ Smooth Jazz, syndicated radio host and co-owner of Portfolio Group, LLC, your smooth jazz lifestyle and entertainment group with offices in Durham, North Carolina. Portfolio Group, LLC, specializes in promoting the lifestyle of smooth jazz listeners with the promotion of smooth jazz events, and the distribution of African-American-owned wines. For more information, PortfolioGroupLLC.com, or you can swing by my secondary site, DJSmoothJazz.com. Now back to Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. All right, we are back, and uh, who do we have coming in with us, Mark? We got Mel Melton coming in. Mel Melton is a, a great musician, a great chef, and just a great gentleman altogether. He's had some great careers and all of that. So I've got in touch with him, and he's going to be joining us in this conversation. So I'm looking forward to talking to my good friend Mel, catching up with Mel, and seeing what he's doing musical-wise. But also, I know that you are a big fan of good food. So just sit back and listen, because he's going to tell you about some great stories about some of the great food that he's fed from New Orleans. So I do know that you like that good food. Mel definitely knows about good food as well. And, and New Orleans has some beautiful, if you never had New Orleans catfish, bro, you might as well go and make your trip down there and get you some. Mr. Mel Melton, welcome to Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. You are now well, on the line. <laughs> How's it going there, Mel? I'm glad to have you on the show with us and everything. That's my partner in crime, uh, exactly. Dean Geronimo and all of that. As you can tell, he knows a little bit about that New Orleans vibe, and uh, you definitely know about that. Of course, you call North Carolina home, but you spent a lot of years down there in New Orleans, and like I was telling him, I consider you to be one of our top musicians when it comes to blues and Zydeco, but also a master chef as well. So, of course, we can't wait to hear some of your stories about your exploits there, but as you can tell, he knows about that New Orleans catfish, so you might have to fry uh, uh, Dean up some catfish in the male melting way and everything. You better believe it. Absolutely. so, Mel, for those that don't know you, like I said, I've known you for a while, but, you know, a lot of our listeners, because we get listeners from all over the nation and all over the world and everything. So just tell folks a little bit about how you came about getting involved first as a cook and also as a musician, because I know you shared those stories with me, and I'm always amazed at some of those amazing yeah. folks like Clifton Chenier and others that you met. So, And, of course, I remember when you used to have your restaurant. I missed that restaurant big time. I keep telling you I want to get you back into the restaurant field you keep looking at me like, no, Mark, them restaurants <laughs> is a headache. I'm not getting back into that. You cannot make me get back into that. <laughs> I don't think so. It was fun while it lasted. I really enjoyed it. But, you know, I lost my partner. I think I, he, I told you he, he, was out, he was in Manhattan, and he's deceased. And he did. He ran all the business part of it. And I, ran, I was the chef, and then I booked all the bands, and my band played there. And, and we had a real good run, but hey, when the the lease was up and he was going downhill, and I just said, you know, that's enough. So I, I looked around. I had a couple of chances at maybe doing something, but I'll tell you, after I'd taken off a couple of months, it's like, man, I'm gonna be 70 years. I am 70 years old. I'll be 71 years old on Wednesday. So, wow. You know that that's too old to be tromping around on a quarry tile floor 12 hours a day. <laughs> But, um, Understood. I can definitely understand fun. that. But you, 
but you still have that youthful vibe, that youthful energy, and all of that. So definitely, I know that you enjoyed it as a youth. But as far as I'm concerned, I don't, I don't believe you're 71. I think you found the fountain of youth, and you're not telling us where it's at. So I want to know what the fountain of youth is and how you're able to keep that youthful energy. I do know that you had that a little bit of a setback with the little minor injury, and I know it's not minor because you've got that surgery and it's got you in pain and everything. But I still think of you as being a very youthful person. So I just want to know how you still got that youthful energy at 71. Well, I feel I feel good, and and it's interesting when they took me to ER. I, you know, I've dislocated my shoulder. Man, you never want to do that. And um, the first guy they brought in, they brought in an MD to try to pull it back in, and nobody could do it. They worked on it and worked on it. But when he uh, right away when when he I uh, had to take my shirt off and all that stuff, he went. I read your chart. Said you're 70 years old. I said yeah. He said. Man, you got a lot of muscles for a seventy-year-old. <laughs> I said, well, a lot of them are in the head, but I'll take what I got. So, uh, but in terms of all that stuff, it it, it all kind of—I uh, I never really planned on being a professional musician, and I definitely never planned on being a turning into a chef. But things just sort of fell in place. Um, I had a roommate. Uh, that was from Lafayette, Louisiana, which is the Cajun capital. And uh, he wanted me to come down there. And this was like in the summer of 1969, yeah. And um, and he always talked about Cajun food, and that was before anybody knew anything about Cajun food. I mean, you could go, you could get a can of gumbo from Campbell's and heat it up, but you know, nobody knew nobody knew anything about it. It was before it had started getting hot when Paul Prudhomme and some of these other chefs started promoting it. But um, I got down there, and right away I was just completely impressed with everything, the culture, the music, the food, the people. Uh, you know, the thing in Lafayette is there's so many French Creoles and Cajuns that a lot of places you go, French is the conversational language. And um, and I had studied French from the time I was in the eighth grade to my sophomore year in college, so I could get around pretty good with it, and uh, I just felt real comfortable down there. And um, the more I stayed, and, then, and I was also lucky. I mean, you know who Sonny Landreth is, I'm sure. He was just named one of the 15 best slide players in the world, Bob some guitar magazine, but I got him, he he was just out of high school. He was a year, a year or two younger than I was, so I played with him probably the second night I was down there, and right away we decided we were going to put a band together, which we did, and then um, no, one, no one knew anything about Zydeco either, and even, even the people in Lafayette were kind of skeptical of Zydeco, and I had another harp player ask me if I'd heard Clifton Chenier. I told him I'd never heard of him. So when I started asking the guys I knew down there, they were like, "Oh man, you don't want to go. That's, that's, you, you don't want to go hear that, you know?" Because they were they were more like into they were hard rock guys. I mean, these guys were hippies and they listened to all that kind of stuff. But so it took me a while to catch up with him, and then uh, one thing led to another, and I had to come back. I was supposed to go back to Carolina in the fall and um i flew in my parents picked me up at the airport and on the way in i told them that i had made a decision that i was gonna 
go back to Louisiana. I wanted to, I wanted to live down there because I liked the culture and I liked the music, and I thought I had a a good opportunity. And I'm, I'm a, I've always been a practical joker, so my my mother started laughing. She said, "Oh, quit kidding around." <laughs> I said, no, I'm not kidding. I'm really going to do it. And I'll never forget, my father was a school teacher. He was a music music teacher. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I don't mind putting you through the University of North Carolina, but I'm not putting you through Cajun country. So if you go down there, you're on your own. <laughs> and I made that decision, that's what I did. So uh, I guess to some degree it all worked out. Um, I always enjoyed it. And then um I've made so many friends. I've still got lifelong friends down there. Um, but all the people down there cook, and especially the men. They do a lot more cooking than, than you would think. Um, and it's not just barbecue pit. I mean, they'll make jambalaya and gumbo and Cajun sausage and all this stuff. So I was I always ate well down there, and then I learned how to make some of the classic Cajun things from you know, basically, uh, older Cajun women and men showed me how to make a roux, how to make gumbo, and all that stuff. So, but it, I had no designs on being a cook. Um, but after I'd been down there for a little while, um, we had a couple of new guys that we wanted in the band, and they wanted to get out of Louisiana. So I brought them up here. We lived up here for about six months and put the band together, and then we moved back to Lafayette and started playing and everything. And um, and still at that point, I wasn't doing any cooking. I had a dishwasher. You know where the Carolina Coffee Shop is in Chapel Hill? Yeah, right downtown. Yeah, I had a. We all, all the whole band. We all had a job there as dishwashers. And I remember, I remember seeing the cooks in action. I was like, man, how can they do that? I don't get it. <laughs> but the, the way I got to be a chef was, um, I went to Austin. Austin had just started to become anything. Uh, this is before the Vaughn brothers. Had, they, they were, everybody was local. There were no stars then. It was just a, a town with a lot of music. And Sonny didn't want to go over there, and none of the other band did either. I, I talked a bass player into going over there with me, and um, and it was a it was kind of a a closed shop over there. They didn't really let's just say we didn't get along with them. I don't think they liked people from Louisiana coming to Austin and trying to get in the way because there were so many bands starting out then. And I, I got to play a few times that I couldn't I couldn't get anything going. And um, so I took a job as a dishwasher at this barbecue joint outside of Austin just to you know survive. And um, and it's this typical thing in a kitchen. I mean, if you hang around and do your job, you're going to end up as a cook, no matter what you're doing. And that's what happened. They had a guy that didn't show up one morning, and the, the head cook wanted me to get on the breakfast line and cook with him. And after that, he said, well, I'm going to move you out of dishes. you you got to tack, tack for this. I want you to learn it, and I'll help you. And uh, so I did. I started cooking there, and uh, it was a pretty popular place, too. A lot of uh, a lot of Austin musicians and people came in there. It was a, it was a fun place, but there were a lot of really uh, extravagant resorts. This was out on Lake Travis, and there were several high dollar resorts out there, and they all had European chefs. 
And the chefs would come in and eat in the morning before they went to work just so they didn't have to be in their own kitchen, I guess. And then sometimes when they got off, they would come over there and drink beer, and I and, and sometimes I would serve too. So one night, this the guy came in the kitchen. He said he wanted to know if he could talk to me, and I said, yeah. And he said, well, I've been watching you, and you're really, you're really good, and you need to get out of this barbecue joint, and I want to give you a, a job out at the resort where I'm a, a chef. And he said, and I'll get you in the Austin uh, Chef Association, and you can start picking up points to to become a chef because I know you're a musician. I know you want to do that, but you'll always have a job and you'll never go hungry if you learn how to be a chef. <laughs> so that's that's pretty much what did it. Um, and then, like I said, this was before the Cajun food craze picked in, and then um, it got to be around Mardi Gras time, and they wanted to have a Mardi Gras party at this uh, World of Tennis Resort. That was the name of this place. And, um, and the chef said, well, um, Mel, none of them knew how to cook any of the Cajun stuff. They'd never done it. And he said, well, Mel, uh, Mel knows that stuff. He lived down there for a long time. Let, let's get him in on it. So we did, a, we did a basic thing. We did, like, gumbo, red beans and rice. We did fried catfish and fried crawfish and stuff like that. And it caught the attention of the Austin American statesman, and they ended up doing a feature article on me in the paper with photos and everything. And that that kind of just propelled me right into it, you know. And then the fact that I was in the Chef Association and working towards becoming a chef. But eventually I decided to go back to Lafayette. We had a chance to – you know who Zachary Richard is? I've heard the name, but I can't place who he is, though. Yeah, they call him the Cajun uh, – what do they call him? Mick Jagger. They call him the Cajun. He jumps around. He's really good. He's an accordion player. speaks good French. He married a lady from Paris. Um, they have a they had a record label over there. I don't think he's there anymore. But he was putting a band together, and he he wanted Sonny, and he wanted my old band. And then he he said he would take me in. He said, "Now I'm a harmonica player too, but you know Sonny and them want you in the band. So if you if you'll move over here, uh, I'll put you in the band." So uh, so I did. I went over there and. And he didn't work that much because he was pretty wealthy anyway. He came from a wealthy rice-growing plantation owner or something. And so he, he would go here and there. We, we, didn't, we didn't tour that much. When we did, it was really good. It was pretty big-time concerts. But, and, the, and I still needed to make extra money, so um, I applied for a cook's job at a restaurant in Lafayette, and I got in the New Orleans Chef Association. And at the time, they were trying to set one up in Lafayette. So we eventually put together a chapter called the Chef de Cuisine Acadien, which is the Cajun Chef Association. And and um, and, so, and I was part of it, so I was one of the top officers in that. And it it was a really good uh, was a really good venture, and I really enjoyed it. And there were some really good chefs in Lafayette. New Orleans is. You know, you, you, it's in a whole different league and always has been. But when you're talking about authentic, down-home Cajun food, Lafayette is the Cajun capital. That's that's where it is. And you can't get a lot of that stuff in New Orleans. They have refined – I mean, they, if you look at all the different influences, 
in New Orleans is just phenomenal. I mean, it's Spanish, it's Italian, it's German, it's Cajun, it's French, it's it's Creole, it's African, it's Jamaican. I mean, there it's just amazing. But in Lafayette, it's always been you know the Cajun or the Creole, and so that was that was kind of my forte. Um, so you still with me? Yeah, I'm still with you. I'm, okay. Well, uh, yeah. One of the things okay. I was curious about is what is because people sometimes wonder the difference between Cajun and Creole. So in your mind, what's the difference between those? Because I've oftentimes talked to people from New Orleans, and they've got different definitions of what that what what that means and how there is a differentiation. And I'd just be curious to hear your version of how that is different between Cajun and Creole. Because I sometimes hear people blend them together. Even restaurants here locally yeah, they do. seem to blend them yeah. together. And they do down there, too. Well, you know, Creole, I think, I can't remember the exact translation, but it means New World. It, the Creole culture was like the the African-American and, and the island culture that came to New Orleans, uh, and they brought a lot of African influence with them. And then the other thing was there, there's a strong... Uh, Native American population in New Orleans, and they 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 put their stamp on it too. So the Creole thing is pretty broad based. There are some specifics that, that just basic sauces. They use a lot more tomatoes. Like in Cajun country, you don't put tomatoes in a gumbo, but in New Orleans, it's hard to find one that doesn't have it in there. It's just a difference in the, the, the flavor profiles and how they do it. But they overlap in so many areas, culturally, musically, culinary, that it's it's hard. The, the way I was taught was Cajun's country cooking and New Orleans is big city cooking. That's what the <laughs> that was the Cajun's quick answer on all that stuff. But um, but you know that was uh, that was what was going on, and I was just happy to be in it, and then. <laughs> We, I finally ended up working for a guy who had a bunch of restaurants. He was opening up, and he hired this guy from Rome to come in and open this big uh, Italian restaurant, and they brought in pasta machines from Italy and all that stuff. And he wanted me to come in and just work with this Italian guy because he was kind of hard to handle. He didn't speak good English. And uh, so I was kind of like his manager, really. I, I mean, I did cook, but... Um, he got in an argument with the owners, and he walked out and quit and uh, moved to Shreveport with his wife, and she was the pastry chef. So then he uh, he told me, he said, you're going to have to take over this kitchen. And I said, well, I've, I've never been a professional Italian chef. He said, but we got, all the, we got all the recipes, we got all the menus, we got all the systems. I'm sure you can pick it up. And I said, well, I'm, I can, and... I said, how long do you think you're going to keep me in there? And he said, oh, we'll find somebody within a month or two. And then six months later, I'll <laughs> I'd become a really good Italian chef. But I told him, I said, listen, man, this isn't what I want to do, and I want to get back to doing the Louisiana thing more. And he said, well, we're looking, we're looking for somebody. And they eventually found him, and then he moved me to New Orleans to run a couple of places that he had over there. And that was pretty good because uh, I kind of had my own schedule. I worked directly under the corporate chef, and they they would just tell me where they needed me to go, and I'd do it. And but then the band was really starting to pick it up, 
and we got a contract with Epic Records. We had put out one LP on a local label. We got we got a contract with Epic Records, and when it launched, they wanted us out on the road, and I mean out on the road all the time. So, um, you know, I told I told Sonny and the band, I said, look, man, I, I'm making a lot of money in this chef thing. I can't really afford to to get out of here because um, I knew what we were making, and it wasn't that much. Even with a big record label, they're the ones that make all the money. I, I told the tour bus driver, I said, you're making twice as much money driving that bus as we are. <laughs> but uh, that was kind of the way it developed. But we got we had a manager out of New York City. She was pretty sharp, and she flew in because they knew I was not going to go on tour with them, and they were, like, freaking out because Sonny had never sang at that point. He does, he sings well now, but he had never done that. He had never fronted a band, and... um and we had picked up C.J. Chenier because Clifton had gotten real sick and couldn't play much. So C.J. was in this band as well. And and so uh, she flew in and she said, I've got a deal. I've called all the uh, clubs. We were going all the way to the West Coast, Kansas City, St. Louis, San Diego, San Francisco, all the way up to the Canadian border and then across the north down down the whole country until we got back to Louisiana. It was it was a long, long tour. Um, and she said, I've made arrangements to where Cajun food has gotten so popular that whenever you show up, they're going to let you set up a Cajun food booth, and they'll, they'll staff it. And all you have to do is cook it, and, um, and you, can make, you can make the profit off the stuff. So I thought about it, and I, I could see it might work, and it, it went over really well, and it, and it drew a lot of attention, too, with the press and stuff like that. And um, we finally, we had been playing in Chicago for years at this really nice club we liked a lot, but the first night we set up this Cajun buffet, they were lined up around the block to get in for the gumbo. <laughs> I'm like, don't you like the band anymore? But... It was just so popular. It, it everywhere we went, it was uh, it was like the thing. And uh, but that night in Chicago, I got approached by a PR guy, but he was also he was pretty top drawer in food service. He had his own radio show on CBS Radio. And he came out of New York City. Um, his name was Ed Brooks, and he was one of the original Brooks Brothers. <laughs> So he pulled me aside and he said, I'm getting ready to help these guys open up a new restaurant and um, I'd like to get you up here to do it. And I said, well, you know, I don't think I can do anything like that. I'm, I'm, I'm out here with the band. And, uh, and he said, well, would you at least meet with the owners and talk to them? And I said, well, I can't, can't this time, but we're going to be coming back in a couple months and I'll meet with them. When I got home, he called me, and uh, we had exchanged numbers, and he said, well, they really want to meet you. Can you fly up next week? We'll fly up, and, and we'll put you up in a hotel, and we can talk about the restaurant and show you the location. I said, yeah, I'll do that. So I flew up there, and um, I met with them, and I told them I'd consider it, and it was a, it was a pretty good amount of money they were offering uh, for, a, for a young chef at that time, and 
And I, when I got home, I, I called Ed and I said, I've thought about it, I've thought about it. I said, I'm just not ready to make a move like that. And he said, well, I'll tell him. And then um, one of the brothers called me that night and he said, what's the problem? And I said, man, I'm, you know, I've been doing this so long, it just, it's just kind of hard to just jump out of it all, all of a sudden. And he said, well, is it a money thing? And I said, no, it's not a money thing. And he said, well, let's just say it is a money thing, and we'll double your salary if you'll take this job. <laughs> and I was just like, I don't think I can turn that down. So uh, so I had to go to the band and tell them, you know, that I was going to be leaving this time for real, and I moved up to Chicago, and uh, and I had a great career up there, too. The, the restaurant was in the town where the Chicago Bears have their training camp, and that's back when they had Walter Payton and Richard Dent and Otis Wilson and all these guys from down south, and I put some Cajun things on this restaurant menu. It, it was a pretty refined steakhouse, but we put some of that stuff on there, and Next thing you know, you know, Walter Payton's in there twice a week. Richard Dent's wanting me to make him some gumbo. And if if I'll bring it to uh, the, the the game on Sunday, he'll get me in the player's entrance and I can sit with the wife. <laughs> so it just these little things just kept popping up. And, um, and I loved it. And then finally um, I had an offer to open my own place and, I decided to open a, a quick-serve gumbo shack down in the bar district around Division. I don't know if you know Chicago that well, but you you got Division, North State Parkway, and and uh, and that's, that's nothing but just nightclubs up and down there, very right. few restaurants at that time. So I put this thing in there, and it, it got a lot of attention. And uh, I just kept riding it and riding it. And then I had a, I, I married a girl from Chicago. That's the other thing I didn't. Met a girl and fallen in love with her when I was up there. She was hoping we were going to move to New Orleans because she wanted to get out of Chicago. But when when she found out what the money was and everything, she said, yeah, we're going to have to stay up here. But we had a son, and um, I guess he was he was between one and two. And I had a lot of friends up there that I ran with that were young young families, and they had children, and I just remember them being so worried about one one guy had a son that was eight years old. He had to ride the L home from school every day, and one day he didn't show up. And you know, then you're you're automatically thinking something horrible happened. And they were always having to worry about that stuff. And uh, and I wanted to come back home anyway and raise my family in North Carolina. I didn't want to raise a family in downtown Chicago. Right. And my parents were both getting older, and they were having health problems, and I thought it might be the best place to be. So so we, we ended up doing that. We came back to North Carolina, and we knew we wanted to have another child, so we, had, we ended up having a daughter, which is what we wanted. And then that's it. I just kind of jumped right in here and have been here ever since, here, here there, yeah. and everywhere. So, gotcha. But I didn't play and, uh, any music. When I was in Chicago, I knew a lot of the blues musicians. I used to go hear them every week, and I had offers to get get up there, but I never I never picked up a harmonica the whole time I was up there, and I never even picked up a harmonica when I got back here. I didn't even think about it. And then Sonny Landreth was playing Cat's Cradle, and he called and said, "We're going to be in town." 
can you come sit in? And I said, yeah, I'll do that. So I went down there and sat in with him. And there was a record label from Chapel Hill. He He's deceased himself now. He finally ended up in New Jersey. Randy Friel, I don't know if you knew him. Yeah, he had new, yeah, he had New Moon Music. So he said, so you're you're Mel Melton? And I said, yes. He said, so you're uh, you're the guy. You and Sonny wrote Congo Square, right? And I said, yeah. And he, he started naming off some other songs that we had written. And he said, well, do you have any other songs? And I said, oh, man, I got a trunk full of them. And he said, well, would you like to come in the studio and record them? I said, well, I don't have a band. And uh, he said, well, I've got a house band that's really good. And it was it was like Ben Palmer and Ed Butler and, and Armand Lincheck. You, you know, that, you could do a lot worse than having those guys on your team. So I went in there to record, and then he wanted to make a record. And, and I said, well, here's the thing. We, we do a record, then that means touring, right? And he said, yeah. And he said, and I'll book the tours. I've got agents, and I can book them. I said, well, I don't really want to go on the road too much. And he said, well, you know, uh, I wish you would. And I said, well, let me go home and talk to my wife, which I did. And she said, well, you know, this might be the best time to do it. You know, the kids are solid. We had a home in downtown Hillsboro. They were in school, and everything seemed fine. So, so I went ahead and did it, and that's how I put the Wicked Mojos together. And uh, they've been together in one form or another ever since. So, uh, so just and how did the restaurant going. come about? Yeah, and how did huh? the restaurant come about? How did the restaurant oh, part of oh, the uh, journey come about? That's a good one. I I had a friend when I was in college, very wealthy, uh, from Manhattan. He's the one that's deceased, and um, we were playing in we were playing in Long Island for a blues festival, and I got a I got a call at the hotel, and it was him. And he said, are you are you the Mel Melton that used to play harmonica when we were in Chapel Hill in Durham? And I said, yeah, do you know another one? <laughs> so he wanted to come out with his wife and um, and his son, and he did, and we kind of reestablished. And uh, he's a filmmaker. He had a, uh, he, he came right out of Hollywood. and But he had done, his Civil War was his specialty, and he was working on a documentary, and he had a place down here that he wanted to, to uh, investigate, not too far from where I live, and uh, he wanted to know if he could stay stay at our house while he was here and we could just hang out. And I said, "Yeah, come on." So he brought his son over, and and at the time I had a group in Richmond, Virginia. They wanted me to come up there and open a Cajun restaurant, and. Uh, he heard me talking to him one afternoon on the phone. He said, "What's this stuff about a restaurant?" I said, "Well, I'm a, I'm a chef." He said, "You're a chef?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Well, man, you never told me that." I said, "Well, we hadn't seen each other in 20 years, so I didn't see any reason to." And and then uh, when he when he got when he got back home, he called me up and he said, "Listen, um, if you want to open a restaurant, you don't." You don't call anybody. I'm your man. I'll, I'll be your back. I'll be your backer. He says, as a matter of fact, I'll I'll back anything you you think you want to do. And I said, well, that's interesting. Um, and this is a long time ago. And, and I said, uh, I've been thinking about a, a music and cooking television show where you could bring on chefs that play music 
and you could bring on musicians that cook, and you could put them all together, and and they could play songs and make food and talk about music, and I think it would be uh, a good thing. And he said, well, you know what, I'm going to call some people in Hollywood, and uh, we're going to fly out there. I think it's a good idea. I'm going to put... I'm going to put a pitch together, and and he did. So we flew out to Hollywood, and we, we met some heavy hitters. Um, but he was uh, one thing about him is he, he was so wealthy, and, and, and he was used to always having his way. And we were dealing with, with these movie producers and, and movie people, and they had different ideas about how they wanted it to go, and he, he wouldn't do it like that. So they were... They were at wit's end with him, and he and I were staying in different hotels. And they came by my hotel one night and said, can we go out and get a drink? We want to talk to you. I said, yeah. We went down to this little bar on the corner. This is in, on Ventura Boulevard. They said, listen, what's this deal with this guy? You know, What does he have over you? And I said, he's just an old, old friend. And I said, and he's my partner. I said, he's my money man. And he said, <laughs> the guy said, Son, you're in Hollywood. We don't need his money out here. We've got the money. We need you. We need talent. So we want you to come out here and we'll do that show. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I've been knowing him for about 20-something years. I've known you for about four days, and I'm I'm going to stick with him. And I'll never forget, he said, well, that's too bad. But he said, I'm going to tell you something. That idea is a hot one, and if you don't do it, somebody else will. And they did. I mean, have you seen that? That uh, hall show that he does with the music and the cooking and the stage and all that stuff. Yeah, I think I've seen that show. But yeah, that, that's I don't basically the name. Of it. I had a couple friends of mine actually played on it. So, you know that that kind of went down the tubes. And then um, he said, "Well, what else do you want to do?" And I said, "Well, I, we're due for a new record." And he said, "Where do you want to do it?" I, I said, I'd prefer to do it in New Orleans because i got a lot of Louisiana guys I want to get on the record, and it'd be cheaper to go down there than have them all come up here. He said, well, let's, let's go down to New Orleans and cut the record. He said, you got a label? I, I said, yeah, i got a label. I know a guy. So we went down there, and we cut, cut the record, and we put it out. That's the uh, Papa Mojo's Roadhouse. Right. And um, and it was well-received, and, and it did real well. And, and then he just said, well, is there anything else that you'd, you'd want to do? And I said, I've been thinking about it. And I said, I'd really like to open a music and, and restaurant club in Durham and call it Papa Mojo's Roadhouse. And I could bring in all these musicians that I've known all these years from Chicago, Louisiana, wherever, and then we would have a Cajun menu, and I'd be the chef, and then my band could play, and... He said, well, let's go ahead and do it. So uh, he found the location. It was, You know where it was. It was in that backwater strip mall, right. uh, Greenwood Collins, and, and there was nothing in there. And all the stuff downtown had, had not started hitting yet, but there was no parking down there. And that Greenwood Commons has a huge parking lot, and the rent was dirt cheap. And I was thinking, well, let's just do it out here and see what happens. And, it, and as you know, it caught on. I mean, we won, uh, what did we win? We voted top Cajun restaurant in the state of North Carolina every year, best casual restaurant in the state. Um, I was on a, <laughs> I was on a, a nationwide 
cooking show called Deep Fried Masters. Did you ever see that? No, I never saw that one. <laughs> oh, man, that was a trip. Well, we had to sign. I knew something was up when I had to sign a contract saying I would never divulge the truth behind this reality TV show. It was, the thing, it was about state fair fried food, and we were supposed to come up with three three dishes, an appetizer, a dessert, and an entree, and cook them in front of judges at three different state fairs, and then they would, they every every time we did it, someone would be eliminated, and um, and I did it, and I knew I wasn't going to win it. I mean, we all knew who was going to win it before <laughs> before they did it, but still, I mean, that thing still comes on. I've seen it. I have people call me all the time. It's still in. Uh, Rotation, it comes in after that barbecue show that's on Travel Channel or something like that. But uh, So, you know, that, that accelerated things, too. And just uh, one thing led to another, and I just stayed right in there. And, uh, and, you know, I figured, well, the other thing was with my partner. He had so much money, and he had land. He owned land all the way from Florida all the way up to, to Maine, and his idea, it was a great vision, was get this thing locked down tight, and then we'll open up maybe seven or eight more of these things and run them down the East Coast all the way to Florida. And to me, that was what I was really interested in doing. And um, and unfortunately, we never could do that because he started having major health problems, and then eventually he, he passed on. So that never that never happened. So when, when I lost him and the lease was up and we hadn't opened but that one store i said yeah i'm gonna i'll take off and take some time off so that's uh that's kind of the way it all happened with a lot of other little subterfuge in there <laughs> no, it sounds fascinating and like i said i know that you've always had fascinating stories about how the uh career went and everything of that nature now with cajun food and everything i've always wondered this there you were right it did become very popular and very mainstream with Paula Dean and some of the others, but I sometimes wonder if that's not unauthentic Cajun food. So I was just wondering what your impression is of kind of the commercialized version of Cajun food. Cause I yeah, well, there's wonder... always that. Well, here's the thing. Paula Dean came in late in the game, and I, and I cooked with her at the, uh, the, that new uh, concert place in Durham. Um, and she hired me to cook on stage with her, and we did all this stuff. And that seemed okay, but the guy that really set the woods on fire was Paul Prudhomme because he came up with he, – he created – him and another chef created the whole blackened thing, mm-hmm. and that's the first Cajun dish that attracted national and international attention. So he started off doing it with uh, – I think they started off doing it with soft shell crabs. And then eventually it went to catfish and different things and shrimp. And it just became completely red hot. And that's really what propelled it into, um, and yeah, definitely Paul Prudhomme and his family, uh, they're they're deep-seated Cajuns, and his food was great. Everything he ever cooked and his sister had a Cajun restaurant in New Iberia, and it was always excellent, too. I did work with him for a little while in New Orleans. I went to Commander's Palace. He made me an offer over there. But I, I, I tell you, I, I'm not a New Orleans guy. I love going there and hanging out there, but I can't, as far as living there every single day, I'm, I'm more comfortable being back on a bayou somewhere where you can fish and hang out and stuff like that. So 
I didn't stay with him that long, um, but we remained friends. When he came to uh, Chicago, he had a book signing, and he called me up and asked me if I could come down there. And I said, yeah, and he said, bring some food. So I did, and then he introduced me, and after the book signing, he said, we're all going down to Mel's restaurant, so I would advise you all to follow us. It's only a couple blocks. So you can't imagine what that did for me with Paul Prudhomme promoting me from the stage of a, a book signing. So, uh, so yeah, he, he helped me a lot. And then the other thing was that Cajun comedian Justin Wilson. He was a he was a comedian when I met him. He he did uh, comedy records and he had a a nightclub act. Nobody knew he could cook. And then he started doing the cooking thing and it it caught on. He stayed with it. But the real Cajuns, especially some of the families I knew, um, they resented him because he really wasn't Cajun. He he came from Livingston Parish, which is right up on the Mississippi River. And you cross the river and you're in Mississippi and. It doesn't have a lot of Cajun attributes, but um, and he talked with a fake Cajun accent, and they really didn't like that either because he, he really was a I think he was a superintendent of education um, when he got started and highly educated and everything. So the whole Cajun thing was just a a show, but it worked out well for him, and I always enjoyed him. I went on the road with him a few times, but a lot of the real Cajun and they didn't like the blacken thing either. They were like, it's all pepper, pepper, pepper. That's not what Cajun food is. <laughs> so, so it was interesting to see how the whole thing evolved. But it's now pretty much a mainstay of American cuisine, and everybody's had a shot at it. So. Oh, yeah, definitely. What do you consider one of your favorite uh, Cajun dishes that, like, you would think of as being a male specialty? Like I said, I I remember going there to the Papa Mojo's and loving the jambalaya and the black beans and rice, but I don't know if you would consider that one of your specialties. So when you think of a male specialty, what is a male specialty? I'll tell you what. I came up with a few dishes, and um, one of them was I did one called, you know what oysters Rockefeller are, right? Yes. Okay, well, I came up with a dish. I called it Redfish Rocky, and I stuffed a red redfish fillet with uh, oysters Rockefeller and then topped it with a Cajun hollandaise with crawfish tails in it. And that thing was so popular. And all the Cajun got C.J. Chenier, I brought him up here, and I used to cook for the band on the road, too, when... <laughs> We cook. We so a lot of times we go off on three band tours. It'd be Rockin' Doopsy and Buckwheat Zodico and Clifton Chenier at that time. And then our band, Bayou Rhythm, we were on it also. And they always looked for a place that had a kitchen so I could, and they could cook t- pretty well too, but not not like me. And so we would go into these hotels wherever we were, and we'd go out grocery shopping, and I'd I'd do some cooking and. Uh, and that's how I got the nickname from C.J. Chenier, Cookie Boy. So, <laughs> and I've stayed with that one. But uh, So, yeah, I'd say that Redfish Rocky was one. Um, I'm trying to think of any of the other ones. Shoot, I'd have to get the menu out. That, that was probably my, my best. And then also the Crawfish Etouffee, I think my recipe, I would put that up against anybody's. And then the other thing was we had jambalaya on the menu, and it was really popular, but problem with jambalaya is it doesn't hold up well on a steam table. So whatever you have left over at the end of the night, it, you can't use it for jambalaya. 
And I started talking to my lead cook, uh, this lady from, uh, she was from some Mexican beach town. Her family owned restaurants down there. I said, Judy, we need to come up with something for this jambalaya. And uh, so I decided I wanted to turn it into a fritter and stuff it with uh, pepper, uh, pepper jack cheese and, and crab meat and make it into a jambalaya fritter, and we did, and and that won a national award. That one got real popular, and that's the one that they wanted me to, to cook on this television show. And I remember the producer called me from New York one morning and said she was going to send some people down there, and they were going to do this show, and then they would call me and let me know if I was in, and they came down, hung out, they went back, and she she did call me up and said she wanted me on the show. So there were going to be eight chefs on this thing, and um, she sent me the contract. I took it to my entertainment attorney, and it was horrible. I mean, it was everything was for them, and there was nothing for you. I mean, it was they had the whole thing. And I told him I wasn't going to sign it, and he said, well, look into it. And he looked into it, and he said, well, I'm going to tell you something. They interviewed and test cooked over a thousand chefs across the country, and they picked eight out, and you're one of them. Now, if you don't want to do it, there's about a, a thousand guys behind you that'll do it. So my advice is do it. He said they're not going to do any of that stuff. He said they do that just to protect themselves. They've been ripped off more than you have. So he said just go ahead and do it. So I did it, and that uh. That worked. So, uh, but yeah, that's a good one. The jambalaya fritters. That, that's probably one of my top ones. And then, also, we used to get uh, frog legs, and I, I would bring them in in season from Louisiana, and we would do we'd do like a barbecued version. We'd do a buttermilk battered fried version, and and they were people around here. They they. I mean, when I was a kid, we used to go frog gigging down on the Catawba River outside of Charlotte. So, I've eaten my share of them, but the Cajun versions. Got a lot more flavor, I think. So, so yeah, you got a lot like more that. flavor. Yeah, and uh, on the musical side, what would you consider your favorite song? Because, like I said, I've known you for a number of years, Mel, and I've always thought of you as an amazing musician and a great musician, and definitely um, honor the Zydeco tradition and the rest of the New Orleans traditions. But I was just wondering, what do you consider as some of your favorite songs? Like I said, I've known a number of them from Papa Mojo's Roadhouse to some of the other albums, but I was just wondering what you consider your best work in terms of the musical standpoint. Well, there's one right off the bat, um, and there's a lot of reasons why it's my favorite, but Congress Square, um, you know, it was done by John Mayo. It was done by the Neville Brothers. They had a hit with it. We played it with them, and... um, and I would say that's that's the most renowned song that we ever did, and it was it was Sonny, me, and the bass player. We wrote that thing, and then it just started getting all this attention. As a matter of fact, um, just a few months ago, the Louisiana Council of Music Council of New Orleans or whatever I can't remember the name of it they they uh, put a list together of the top fifty songs written about the state of Louisiana by Louisiana musicians. And, I mean, we're going back to, uh, you know, the 1800s on this thing. And Congo Square was named one of them. I think it was, like, the number 20 or 21, something like that. So so you can't – and then the other thing is it's, <laughs> it's, 
it's the only one I really ever made any real money off of. And but you know, in terms of the other ones, yeah, I like Papa Mojo's Roadhouse, and um, it's hard for me to differentiate between them. I've played them so many times. The thing is, we were working on a new record when uh, when all this uh, we had to put it on the shelf for Christmas because one of the guys in the band had had some conflict on it, and we were going to get back on it and get it out for a spring release. But then this COVID thing hit. But right now, I've got. We've got ten rough mixes of songs, uh, and I've been listening to them quite a bit. And I think that's probably as good a stuff as I've ever written. But, but uh, when the Neville Brothers played uh, downtown Durham, and um, the manager wanted me to do do cater for them, and I knew them, and I said, "Yeah, I'll do that." So I went down there and shook their hands and everything. We set up set up a little buffet and they went crazy over it and um and Aaron <laughs> Aaron got back there first and he hit the food before the rest of the band was finished so when the rest of the band came in he said guys I know y'all all don't know what Mel Melton but Mel's the guy who wrote Congo Square with Sonny Landra and um they all went oh man you're kidding you I've been wanting to meet you and everything and um and he said well he's not going to be here long uh, he said, I had to call the police to come down and get him because what he did to this chicken is a crime, and he can't do that. <laughs> so, so, so then when, it, when I left, I brought him a record, and I said, man, I'll tell you what. I said, the first year you did that song and did it on national TV, I said, Sonny and I, I said, my royalty check for the first six months was like fifteen grand, and I said, and then the next one was like $45,000. And uh, I said, what I want to know is, how can I get you to do another one of my songs? <laughs> and he said, well, send me, send me your newest record. And uh, I gave him a copy, and he took it. But I never, I never heard back from him. But they, they've had a lot of health problems too. You know, art passed on and stuff like that. But uh, so yeah, my main goal, and at some point, I do want to finish this record. I don't know what we'll do with it or how we'll do it, but. You know, I'm in on it this far. I, I want to get it done, and that would be uh, that would be wonderful. And then the other thing is, I like that chromatic harp. We play that on um, Congo Square, but then I also do an old Clifton Chenier song on it called "If I Ever Get Lucky." And that one, no, I don't think anybody else has ever done that song, but Clifton and me. And uh, and it's a slow song, but it's really, really deep blues, especially with the chromatic harp in the minor keys. So that's another one of my favorite ones. Wow. And then any of the Zydeco stuff. I'm sorry, what about the Zydeco stuff? Said any of the Zydeco stuff, because, you know, I'm the guy that invent. I, I mean, I created that Zydeco double octave harmonica. That had never been done before, and I kept listening to all these accordion players, squeeze box players, and I wanted to do it. And I'm left-handed, and I play the harmonica upside down, but you can't play a squeeze box upside down. It doesn't work out that well. So I called Honer. I was I was an endorsed artist with Honer Harmonicas. And I said, do you all have any harmonicas that sound kind of like a Cajun accordion? And the guy said, we got a few. I'll send you some. And they did. I picked out a couple, and and we really liked them. And I started using them. And then I just I just kept at it. And now there's several others. It's funny, too, because I'm on some of these harp uh, forums on Facebook, and one morning some guy was, uh, he said, man, how, 
how how can I play Zydeco on a harmonica? And about four of them right away went, you got to get in touch with Mel Melvin. <laughs> so he did. And I don't know how, I don't know what he's doing with it now, but, you know, I, I told him what I know. And we'll see. Uh, hopefully, uh, like I said, you created a whole style of uh, of that fits in with the Zydeco music and definitely all of that. Um, who were some of the people that you would say inspired you in terms of your own musical journey? I know that there were people like Clifton and Chenier that you played with, but I was just wondering, of course, Sonny, but who were some of the other people that inspired you on your musical journey, whether it was straight blues or whether it was Zydeco, but who were some of your own personal inspirations? Oh, well, in terms of harmonica, Paul Butterfield, um, has always been my favorite, and I got to meet him. It was late in his life when he wasn't doing real well, but he was staying with a friend of mine. You, you know who Bobby Charles is? He wrote See You Later, Alligator, and a couple of these other. Yeah. Well, he he lived right next to me down on the bayou, and uh, and Bob Dylan had this thing called the Rolling Thunder Review that was touring through, uh, and they they ended up coming into his farm and staying for a few days and Paul Butterfield was hanging with him for some reason and he ended up staying after everybody else had gone so I I got to be reasonably friendly with him he wasn't the, he wasn't the most friendly guy in the world but he showed me a few things but definitely his influence for sure and, and Clifton I mean he's the guy he's the man uh <laughs> You know, I, I I just love the guy. I was always intimidated by him. I could never relax around him. He just, I don't know why. But, um, and I wish I'd been closer to him, but I, I was always afraid to really try to get tight with him. But I played with him off and on for a long time. It, it's funny, I had a job, a day job, um, going around with these drivers, picking up mobile homes and bringing them to this lot so they could be refurbished. And one of the girls that uh, worked there, said, I think I saw you at the Blue Angel Club uh, a couple weeks ago checking out Clifton. And I said, yeah, I did. I did. And it was an all-black club, but, you know, everybody was pretty cool back then anyway. And uh, she said, well, what do you think about – she knew I played harmonica. She said, what do you think about Clifton's harmonica playing? And I was cocky back then. I said, well, you know what, he, can, he may as well just stay with the accordion because uh, his his harmonica playing ain't even in the same league with mine. And so <laughs> she came to work the next day, and she said, well, I went over to Cliff's house, and I told him what you said, and he's playing at the Antlers Club this Saturday night, and he wants you to come down there and play harmonica. He wants to hear you play. <laughs> so I was scared to death. I was like, look what I got myself into now. So I, I told the band, I told Sonny and Dave and all the guys, I said, man, I'm doing this thing with Clifton. I, you guys got to come down there, man. I, I, I'm scared to death. So, so I went down there, and they were all dressed up. They dressed real nice, and Clifton used to wear the crown with the cape on stage. And you know, I was some old scruffy hippie with cowboy boots and blue jeans. And I went up and introduced myself to him, and he was nice enough. He said, well, I'm going to get you up there. And, uh, and uh, I said, well, thank you. And then when I turned to walk away, I could hear them all laughing. I thought, <laughs> I thought they must think I'm some joke. But he didn't. He didn't wait very long. He he brought me right up on stage, and I played a song. And uh, when it was over, people were going nuts, and I got ready to get off stage. He said, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, you ain't getting off stage. You stay up here." And um, his drummer Robert Judy was the original Zydeco drummer, 
and he had he had blind John playing saxophone, and he was blind, and and uh, he, the sax and I immediately hit it off, and we started playing off each other on these songs, and and he after every song he was like just whooping and yelling, and and the drummer finally leaned over to him and he goes, Hey John, it, it, it's a white boy, it's a white boy, John. <laughs> He said, I don't give a damn what it is, man. I like this stuff. So at that point, I got, you know, I got to be good friends with him. And I never joined the band. Sonny actually joined the band, toured with him for over a year. Um, but I would I would go in and play uh, with him. I mean, they would say, look, we got it. we're playing in Houston tonight. Cliff wants you to come. Can you do it? We're going to play in Opelousas. And, and I said, yeah. And then when... Uh, when I moved to Chicago, it was the same thing. Now that was back when he was really going down. He had, he had to play in a wheelchair. And CJ had started off in the new band as his sax player, and he didn't even play accordion. That's what he played with us. He played, uh, he played piano and organ and and sax. He didn't. So he learned to play accordion on stage with his father, and then he wow. just naturally got on it where he's really good now he's as good as good as anybody i've ever heard but uh but yeah so and, and then cj and um let me think there's some of the other ones i mean there's some of this cajun i'd say the neville brothers definitely i've got some of some of their stuff in my catalog and and then there's this form of a kind of a louisiana doo-wop thing called Swamp Pop, and that's really big down there, and there were some bands down there, Cookie and the Cupcakes and Little Bobby and the Lollipops, and they weren't internationally known at the time. They eventually did uh, have a pretty good following in Europe, but they were local, and I used to go out and check them out all the time. I really liked the kind of stuff they did. It had a little bit of blues, but it was kind of greasy. It didn't have much Zydeco. I don't think any of them ever had a had a, a an accordion player. It was more like a horn, like a soul horn band type thing. So, uh, so that's some good stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, because one of the things I've noticed, and me and uh, Dean have talked about it. Dean is my co-host, who's, of course, and I hope he's still on the call and everything. But he's a hip hop head and everything. And I do remember that there was a period of time, I would say even a few years ago, that there seemed to be like this kind of like new version of New Orleans hip hop that blended Zydeco and the hip-hop industry, because I remember, like, Little Brian and some others that would have, like, this rap music that came yeah. out with, like, also some hip-hop influences. So, like I said, I remember Little Brian was one, Chris Ardwan, there were a couple of others, but that seemed yeah. like that was another form of even the hip-hop industry that was definitely using that New Orleans influence, but was definitely um, based in the New Orleans tradition. And it's still going on, too. Uh, there are a lot of those guys down there. So, uh, yeah, and I like that, too. I mean, it's good stuff. It's solid rhythm, and everybody knows what they're doing. So have at it. But, yeah, uh, sounds like they were definitely blending the styles and everything. I remember one thing that you told me was about, I guess it was maybe Clifton or some of the others, but you would go on these tours to, like, some of these uh, resorts and things of that nature that were definitely not in areas that we're used to seeing, um, I guess, black faces and things of that nature. So I guess you were kind of like the point person. I think you mentioned to me one time a trip to, like, Colorado or something like that. So I don't yeah, know if you want to that, share that some of those one. stories. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it could be noticeable at times. It never got, uh, you know, it never got nasty or violent or anything. But I know we had a, a, a one-week 
stand in this town in uh, Montana. We never, we hardly ever went over there, but we had the same. It was a five-night tour, and it was snowing like hell. Couldn't even see the roads. And we pull into this place, and it was a big cowboy saloon with a stage, and CJ was playing with us, um, and we walked in there. <laughs> we walked in there, and I swear, man, you could have heard a pin drop. It's like... I don't know if they had never seen a black man or a black person before, but they just, they were just like, they didn't know what to do. And uh, I went in and introduced myself, and the barmaid was running the show, and she started telling us what to do. (laughs) CJ pulled me aside, and he said, all right, Cookie, you're going to have to get me out of here, man. I'm I'm counting on you to get me out of this one. (laughs) But you know what? They ended up they ended up liking it. They ended up learning how to Cajun dance and Zydeco dance and everything. It was just kind of an immediate reaction. But uh, I never ran into it. But Clifton surely did. I mean, some of the war stories he he told he 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 hit it pretty bad. And then Lightning Hopkins was his cousin, and um, Lightning used to come over and we played with him some. And and he told us some stories one one night backstage at. Uh, club in Texas about how he used to try to avoid certain parts of Texas because it was just, you know, it could be uh, dangerous to do it, and they wouldn't do it. So so now it looks like it's re- rearing its ugly head again. But what the hell? Yeah, it looks like that kind of uh, attitude toward people is definitely rearing its ugly head and things of that nature. So hopefully things will change in society and we can get some better uh, folks with some more sense in positions of higher power and things of that nature. So we definitely, hope that that, we definitely hope that we can get some more sensible folks other than the craziness that we've been having for the last four years or something like that. So we've definitely got to get some improvements going. You um, better believe it. On the new album, who are some of the people that you might be having on the new album? Because uh, you mentioned you've already done some recording. I imagine that some of the people, like I said, you mentioned that you had sent some cuts to the Nevels and are still waiting to hear from them. But are there any of our local musicians or other folks that folks might recognize or even national folks that are already uh, on the album that you're hoping to get out this year? You know what? I don't on? really know at this point because all we've done is we were rehearsing at my drummer's house because he has equipment set up. And we were going over there once or twice a week to where we finally got eight or nine of these songs down on tape, and I've got them. I, I mean, the, the one thing, I mean, I'll never cut a record without Sonny Landreth and C.J. Chenier on it. And and every time I do one, I call them up, and C.J.'s like, why are you calling and asking me if I'm going to play on your record? You know I'm going to play on it. Just just tell me when and where, and we'll do it. And Sonny's the same way. So I haven't really... Uh, investigated the options i know i want a horn player and um there's a couple of good ones that used to play at the uh at the roadhouse they've moved one of them moved to baltimore but i'd like to see if i could get him and then tim smith also is a great horn player i'll probably look him up i know he's still around we stay in touch a little bit other than that there's going to be some background vocals and um I'm sure I'll look into the catalog there. I mean, Jasmine always did a great job singing at the restaurant. I'd probably get in touch with her and, and see what we got. But right now we're at a point where we left them for the holidays and we haven't we haven't been back at it. So they're just in. I listen to them a couple times a week and I look back over the lyrics and change some of that. But uh, 
I just look forward to the day we can get back in there and actually get them down. So we'll see when and that happens. And how's it coming? In, yeah, and how's it coming in terms of like um, if, because you're not rehearsing that much with the band, or you're just trying to get We're when you can. We're not rehearsing at all. Right. We're not rehearsing at all. Well, uh, you know, TA doesn't want to get around anybody. He's very, very cautious about the COVID thing. And and uh, my drummer Kelly lives in Greensboro. He's a he's a forensic photographer, and um, he's retiring at the end of this year, I believe. And he he's moving. He's moving to. Uh, he wanted to go out west and look around. And he uh, he lived in Europe. And he's been to Europe a lot. And he played with Skeeter Brandon. They used to tour Spain a lot. And he he's thinking about moving to southern Spain. So he's. He's leaving the band. Well, he's left for now. I mean, he, there's no reason to bring him back in. So I'm, I'm looking to get a drummer that I can get in there. Um, and I, number one would be Chuck Cotton because he's just he's about as good as they get. And then we'll just have to figure it out from there. But uh, that's yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yep. Uh-huh. In terms of the vocals, I said <clears throat> that makes a lot of sense. And in terms of the vocals, I mean, Jasmine's always great. I know that. Uh, Sharon's popped up on the stage with you a couple of times, and I think she's trying to get back out into her vocal career and everything. And so there well, are some too. of those folks that. I'm sorry. Yeah, that would be good too. Well, I'll probably need to talk to you about it before we get down to the nitty gritty. Because I've kind of oh, lost yeah, cause track. Yeah, because there's a number of the musicians that are still here that I'm in touch with, and of course I'm still in touch with Brett. Of course, they're doing like a uh, virtual. Um, coffee hour kind of thing because of course they're not doing the open mic at that um spot downtown anymore no, not everything's yet. on that no. distance thing so i know when i talked to him last week he was telling me that they're doing like a virtual just kind of like keeping up with each other and there might be some fringe playing but it's more like a coffee table kind of discussion just to keep everybody engaged so he's been yeah. doing that now for a little well, we bit got I know he's doing we that on a regular basis but i mean i'm sorry I said we have an offer to do that down at the Blue Note Grill, but it it's going to have to be after I get this shoulder back. <laughs> so uh, until then, I'm not really able to. I don't have any mobility. I got it in a harness until the end of August. Oh yeah, it's got that harness going, and it's got to keep that. And how long are they telling you that you're going to be um, incapacitated before you can actually um, hopefully I don't know. get um, I go back, out and I about know. more? I meet with the surgeon on the last day of August, and at that point, I'm supposed to come out of that that uh, brace. And then it just—I I don't know what he has planned in terms of building mobility and strength back up, but I'm just going to have to follow his lead and see see what I got to do. So I just have to yeah, get right here. Yeah, unfortunately, those injuries are hitting a number of musicians. I know my friend Zach, who's a funk musician, has actually got to go in for surgery um, in about another week or so because I think he had one rotator cuff surgery and things uh, adjusted, and now he's got to do it on the other arm. So, unfortunately, as uh, folks get older, there's more of that going on because, like I said, you had yours at 70, and I think he's turning either 61 or 62. So he's, uh, I think, going in for his surgery next week. So we do know that that's going on. And everything. But before we wind down everything on this conversation, I'm glad you were able to join us into the conversation. I was wondering, from your standpoint, um, it does seem like COVID is opening up some doors for musicians and everything in terms of being able to get their stuff out there. And I was just wondering, is that your take on the industry? Because I do know in the past, a lot of times musicians were complaining about being too confined 
by what the labels were doing, whatever those labels were, whether they were big labels or small labels. But now it seems like the new era of COVID and the new era of pivoting around society has actually opened some doors. But that's just my perception. I was wondering, as a musician, what your perception is. Well, for me, it hadn't. You know, I've got I've got CDs here. I don't I don't try to. I'm not out there trying to sell them every day of the week. Um, but knowing, you know, C.J. Chenier, uh, Johnny Sansone, Sonny Landreth, and some of these other Louisiana guys that I know have got they've got records out, and then some of the uh, some of the um, Northeast blues guys have have got them out, and. The word I hear directly from them is it's it's not good. Um, there's no gigs, and really, when you're in this Zydeco blues kind of thing, you make your money off CDs, selling them at shows. That that's where the money is. And uh, you can sell. You go in a place with maybe two or three hundred people, you might sell twenty five or thirty CDs every night you're in there, and uh, that that's your money, not the record label. So. I haven't heard any. I have heard a couple of success stories out of Texas with people that are have figured out a way to do it. I haven't even looked into it. I figure when we do this virtual thing at the Blue Note, um, by that point I need to be have it going on and then see what other see what other avenues we could go down to keep the thing alive. So. So I don't really know that much about it. Only, I mean, I've asked every one of them. None of them are happy. I mean, CJ, I talked to him last week, and uh, and he said, "Man, he said I just, he said every day I get up, he said I'm just seeing dollars flow up into the air that'll never be taken back by me again." He said, "We're not doing, we're not doing anything." So, and Sonny said the same thing. They did a virtual thing at a new club in Lafayette. It got pretty na- major attention on. YouTube and it was really good and uh, I called and we were talking about it and he said it he said you got to do it because it, that keeps your name and your reputation out there he said we didn't make any money off of it he said the only way I'm making money right now is doing session work and he said and that's that's going pretty good but he said as far as getting the band out there and doing stuff he said it's just not there so so yeah, we'll just have like to hunt it down yeah, just have to hunger down because it does seem harder and harder. I know that I'm a big fan, and I know that you are as well of um, what's the uh, young lady? Well, she's not young now, but a big fan of Rosie Ledette and her kind of style of music and everything. And I know when I've seen the past YouTubes of her back in the day, it was definitely in those big clubs and things of that nature. So if they were selling CDs, a number of those CDs would be sold right at that moment as soon as she was done oh, yeah, performing. Yeah. But Everybody. unfortunately now I'm thinking those big kind of like big house parties that were very popular throughout Louisiana cannot happen because of the restrictions that they have. So if, they've, if they're happening, they'll probably have to do social distancing and all of that, which kind of probably destroys the vibe of what those kind of parties are. Well, they're doing them, you know, and I guess that's what we have to do is adjust and, and keep it going one way or another. But uh, I don't know. I'll find out one of these days, but I'm not sure when. I haven't been out beating the bushes for gigs because I've got to make sure I can perform well before I can do that. But uh, we'll just see. That's all I can do. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, that's all we can do. And the last thing I was going to ask is you teased me about it last time. So for those listeners that are watching, I want you to tell folks the difference between how we don't need to be using the word. Because I think I used the word washboard. And you told me that that's not the word. That's it's right. a rough board. So did you tell me tell me again about how it's used and the correct using. Because, like I said, I've heard people use that term washboard, and you've told me that that is absolutely wrong. So it's a it rough board. And what's the actual word for because um, I've heard the other one that I've misused as well in the past, but a harmonica is actually a mouth harp, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's what they say. <laughs> but uh, well, in terms of that, it's uh, it's interesting in that before they had the rub board, then that's what the Louisiana guys had to play a real washboard and right. tie it around their neck or put a, a chain around it, and that's what everybody used and. and cl- Clifton's brother Cleveland, probably the greatest rubboard player ever born. Um, and Clifton, Clifton talked him into going out to this uh, this guy that had a a metal business out near the oil fields in Lafayette, and he designed an all metal washboard that you just put over your shoulders, and it doesn't doesn't have to be tied around your neck, and it. It was a lot bigger, a lot louder, and, and there was a lot more you could do with it. And also, it's fairly attractive. It's really shiny. And so Cleveland got the very first one, and he he developed a whole technique on it. I mean, you can go on YouTube and watch him. He even did some lessons on there. But So they changed the name from washboard. They they called it a rub board, and then the, the Cajun, the Creole Cajun French word for that is a frottoir. Which means a scratcher. So that's what. So either call it a rub board or call it a frottoir, but don't call it a washboard. <laughs> <laughs> so now we know what not to call it. Got to call it by the right name and all of that kind of thing. So definitely uh, lots lots to learn about your history and everything. So I'm glad that you were able to join us on the show and everything. So I definitely appreciate that. And as we close out the show, me and Dean usually try to get from our guests, no matter which of our various shows we're involved with, they're kind of like words of encouragement that they would give just to society in general. So if there are any words of encouragement, and this can be either from a musical standpoint or from a cooking standpoint or just a life standpoint that you would like to share with our audience, I would love to hear that from you as well because that's one of the things that's almost like one of our regular routines is getting words of encouragement that is shared from people that have got different life experiences. So I'd love to hear your words of encouragement to our audience. Oh, here's what I tell people, and and I get these guys calling me about the, I mean, the music thing's a little bit depressing now. I don't know what to tell these young guys. The the only thing I've always done, and I'm not saying that, I mean, obviously I'm not a a rock star or anything, but go where your heart is. You know, if if you buy into something and you, you love doing it and, it speaks to you like that, then that's that's what you need to be doing. And I've always, the music was always there for me. I grew into the, the chef and the cooking thing, and they're two things that I, I love to do, and I still do. And I think that's another thing that will help, help keep you young, is that if you believe in what you're doing and you love doing it, then you're not sitting at some desk all day and hating life in general. So uh, that's what I would say. Follow your, Follow your path. Stay on it. Because we ain't here long. 
That's very true, and I definitely appreciate that advice. I think that's some great advice to be given. Actually, I was telling Dean before you got on that in one of my streaming podcasts, I had a couple of career coaches, and that's basically what they were saying as well, is that none of us know when this journey ends, this life journey, and for us to do things that you are passionate about and that you're actually are interested in doing and not to just kind of like going through the rotating motions of doing things that you don't have an interest in. So they were given similar advice, even in the ways that they phrased it. So I do think that that's some wonderful advice and everything. So, uh, Dean, if you're still there with me, I need you to pop on in here and talk about, uh, uh, the different platforms that we're on and how we can get involved in all of that. Cause I do know that we're on a number of great platforms as part of the next level network. So Dean, I'm waiting for you to pop on in here and wrap us all up at everything. Okay. Well, I'm here, man. Just thank Mr. Melton for joining us this evening. We appreciate the You're conversation welcome. and we appreciate you. Um, it's straight talk with Dana Mark y'all Monday night, 7 PM. Don't forget to catch us tomorrow on the uh, Skyhawk Radio Network. And that's going to be actually Tuesday and Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So make sure that you tune in for that as well. And if you missed those, we do have replays. And they are on Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Podcast Addict, Castbox, Podfollow, and right here on Blog Talk Radio. 73 countries, all 50 states. We are part of the Level Radio Network. Make sure to stay locked in right here at blogtalkradio.com backslash squared 807. We have a number of shows that um, we'd love for you to catch the Black Girl's Guide to Surviving Menopause, She's on Call, Let's K-12 Better, WNC Original Music, the Let's Talk About It radio show, Funk Funk from the Front Seat, the Just Podcast, Minority Reports with Mona Shake, the Mark Lee Show, Mullings Music and Memories with Mark Lee, the Plant a Good Seed Podcast, Funk Music with Zach, the Spin It Social Hour, the Online Dinner Party with Mark Lee, Chef Gang Radio Show, and uh, I think that's about it with the exception of this one right here, Straight Talk with Dana Mark. Like I always say, when you walk outside your front door, it's showtime and the world is your stage. Just make sure the people are not watching the rehearsal. Remember, we are back here on Blog Talk Radio, no longer on the pod being That was just like a couple of day thing, but uh, Blog Talk been good to us and worked out for us, so we're here, all right? And we'll continue yes, that's where to we're at. And Dave, I don't know about you, but I do have to tease you about everything, and hopefully uh, Mel is still on the calls. If he's not, I'll just tease you alone and everything. But uh, Mel kept talking about all that good food, that jambalaya, that uh <laughs> Blackened fish and you know all of that other stuff. I don't know about you, uh, Dave, but I was getting hungry. What about you? Were you getting a little hungry <laughs> by all that great food that Mel was talking about and the fact that he could stir it up? I've actually had some of Mel's cooking, so I think the next time that you come and visit some of your family members in Virginia, you need to just slide on down the road a little bit further and visit Mr. Mel. Maybe we'll go knock on Mel's door together and see if we can't get him to cook us up some of that 
fast food because, you know, I'm thinking that you might need to come down from uh, New Jersey and cruise on by some of your parents' house and uh, some of your relatives in Virginia and make a stop over here in North Carolina and see if we can't get some of that uh, fine dining that mail provides because I was getting real hungry and I know I was missing <laughs> that mail food that I've had. So I'm, I'm inviting you down. Mail, is it all right if I invite Dean down for some mail cooking? Yeah. I'm just inviting like it's like, right. uh, like I got the right to invite him to your house. But mail, is it all right if I invite Dean to come down and have some of that fine food of yours? <laughs> Let's hey, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that, man. And uh, we appreciate, appreciate you. Thank you very much uh, for having me on. Indeed, indeed. So, you know what? Like I always say, too, have an outstanding week. We will see y'all in seven days. Right. Sounds great, and we'll have some more amazing guests at that time. I'm still in the process of lining them up, but we will definitely have another great discussion. And uh, like Dean said, it's great being black on here on Blog Talk Radio, and we're going to see where we can rock and roll and uh, definitely keep this dialogue going and having these great conversations. So definitely keep the radio locked in right here because the Next Level Podcast has got all kinds of great programming, so you can just get all kinds of great content during the course of the week and we will see you back here in seven days like dean said until later peace peace